When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Hi, my name is Julie Fink with the Front Porch People. We'd like to thank Visible Voice Books for sponsoring the Novel Conversations giveaway, which gives listeners a chance to win all eight classic novels featured in our third season. Visible Voice Books is our local go-to for delving into our favorite books in a relaxed, inviting environment. And if you're not here in Cleveland, Ohio, you can always support Visible Voice Books by shopping online at visiblevoicebooks.com. Welcome. I'm Frank Lavallo, and you're listening to Novel Conversations. This week, I'm going to have a conversation about the novel Emma by Jane Austen, and I'll be joined in conversation by our Novel Conversations readers, Pat Fernberg and Jennifer Weinbrecht. Jennifer, Pat, hello. Hello, Frank. Hi, Frank. Before we start our conversation today, let me read a brief introduction to today's novel. Set in the English countryside of the early 1800s, Jane Austen's Emma is the story of Emma Woodhouse, mistress of Hartfield Manor and the social leader of the village of Highbury. Because her governess was recently happily married, Emma decides she is the perfect matchmaker. As the novel unfolds, Emma attempts to make matches for several unattached women and men in the town. How her matches and mismatches fare, and whether Emma can make a love match for herself, form the basis of our novel, Emma, by Jane Austen. All right, Pat, I know this isn't the first time you read the novel, but can you remember your first reaction to reading it? Yeah, I was appalled by Emma. Appalled? That's pretty strong. Well, she was so different from all the other heroines of Jane Austen's novels. She was self-involved. She was meddling in other people's lives. She couldn't accept any of her own faults. And how exactly does this differ from some of Jane Austen's other characters? (laughs) Well, those are usually not the protagonists, I can tell you. Emma has everything on her side, and she just can't leave people alone. She has to manipulate them, and it's almost an obsession with her. And at the same time, she can be a loving friend. She can be a loving daughter. Well, let me ask you, though, Pat, as you've gotten older, has your appreciation or your feelings for Emma changed? It has, and part of it is the wonderful humor that Austen brings to it. Not only does she allow her character to be lively and amusing and pleasant and engaging, She also has comments as the narrator that are pretty sly and that sort of set Emma up to fall on her face. And then she picks her up again and allows her to fall down again. All right, Jennifer, it's your turn. Do you recall your first reaction to reading Emma? I wasn't very long out of high school when I read Emma the first time. And it just reminded me so much of high school with all the little sly comments and games people are playing with each other, mostly Emma. But, you know, as the story unfolds, we find out that other people are playing some games little secrets people are keeping, and it's all about matchmaking and who's going out with who and who's interested in who and (laughs) who's dancing with who and who's looking at who. But let's be clear, these aren't high schoolers we're talking about. No. Most of our characters are in their early 20s, some even as late as late 30s. Right. So it's very funny because of that. 
And I didn't like Emma very much when I first met her because she reminded me of one of those girls who you don't like a whole lot in high school. (laughs) You know, they have a different outfit every day of the year. They're the cheerleader. They get good grades. They get all the boyfriends after them. And they manipulate other people. So it's very much like that sort of American high school setting. Agreed. Well, as you've gotten older, have you come to care for Emma more? Well, like most Jane Austen books, the first time I read it, I had to turn around and read it again because there were so many things that I missed the first time, so many clues and hints to how the story was going to end up. And as I read it the second time, I really felt sorry for Emma. She's so trapped in her life with her father, and she's ministering to other people all the time. Even though she has all those qualities that I didn't like, I saw so much value in her. And I started to think about all those people that I didn't like when I was in high school. And I started to think, you know, you don't know what's going on in people's inner lives. So it was a real lesson for me, I think, when I was a very young person. Okay, Pat, introduce Emma to us. Jane Austen has done it in the very first sentence. Emma Woodhouse, handsome, clever, and rich, with a comfortable home and happy disposition, seemed to unite some of the best blessings of existence. And that is a very good description of our Emma. That's Emma in a nutshell. But Jennifer, right after our novel introduces Emma, it really starts with a wedding. Yes, the novel begins with Emma and her father sitting at home after the marriage of Emma's governess, who really stood in for her mother in her early years because her mother died when she was young and then became her friend as she became older and had been living with them since Emma was a little girl. And the governess was Miss Taylor. Miss Taylor. And now married Mrs. Weston. Yes, and Mr. Woodhouse is missing her terribly. As is Emma. As is Emma, and Mr. Woodhouse is talking about poor Miss Taylor and the horrors of marriage because it takes people away from their home and from people who care about them. Well, Pat, let's mention Mr. Woodhouse. He hates change, and that's really his problem with this marriage. Not so much he's unhappy for Miss Taylor. Well, Mr. Woodhouse hasn't quite gotten over the marriage of his oldest daughter. And that's been at least eight or nine years. It has, and he is a hypochondriac. He believes that windows should be kept closed. Children should not be brought into a house because they bring infection wherever they go. He's addicted to gruel, very thin, very runny, very cool. He's constantly fussing about his own health and everyone else's. If there were three raindrops, he saw a storm. If there were three snowflakes, he saw a blizzard. If the window was open, he was certainly going to catch his death of cold. And everyone else. But Jennifer, Miss Taylor, now Mrs. Weston, has not moved far away. No, I think she's a half a mile away, maybe, at Randall's Park. Emma and Mr. Woodhouse, their home is called Hartfield, and they're going to see each other every day, as Emma keeps reminding him. Another near neighbor, Mr. Knightley, walks in while Emma's trying to comfort her father over the loss of Miss Taylor. And Mr. Knightley's more than just a near neighbor, though. Yes, he's Emma's brother-in-law. His younger brother married her older sister several years ago, and they live in London now. Mr. Knightley owns Dunwell Abbey, which is the large estate in the neighborhood. He is one of the largest farmers in the area. He is a magistrate. He is a very sensible man. He's 16 years older than Emma. And he frequently reminds her that he is much older than she and much wiser. And it's quite obvious by their conversation that he's a frequent visitor at Hartfield. There's no pretense with Mr. Knightley. And he's a sensible person. Everyone in the area looks up to him. While reading the novel, I got that Mr. Knightley was better off than the Woodhouse's but I wasn't sure who was the leading gentry in this area. It's Mr. Knightley. Oh, okay. But the Woodhouse family have lived there for many generations, and they're very wealthy. And since Mr. Knightley is unmarried, Emma is the preeminent social leader in Highbury. Exactly. 
And in this first conversation, we see how free and easy Emma and Mr. Knightley communicate with each other and his understanding of her personality and her father's. He teases Emma, but there's a point to his teasing. Yes, he is making fun of Emma because she believes that she brought this couple together. And he's pointing out to her that these things happen naturally without interference, and in fact, probably better. That's right. I mentioned in our introduction that Emma believes she's the matchmaker that got Miss Taylor and Mr. Weston together. But as Mr. Knightley likes to remind her, love happens without really too much interference. Emma is convinced that not only did she do a great job lining up Miss Taylor and Mr. Weston, but she's willing to do that service for someone else. Well, let's talk about who she's going to do that next service for. Well, there's a minister in town, Mr. Elton. He's been there maybe about a year, and he's a young, unattached man. And of course, he must be lonely. Well, Pat, if Emma's picked out her unattached man, who's the unattached woman? The unattached woman is a young woman in town. She's what they call a day boarder at a private school. Her name is Harriet Smith. And Harriet is what they refer to as the natural daughter of nobody knows who. Somebody placed her at the school years ago and has never come back for her. With no parents, she really could have no social standing, right? She not only has no social standing, she has no money, and she really doesn't have much of a future. So her future will be teaching at the school unless she is very lucky. Well, she does get lucky when Emma turns her attentions towards her. Emma's really struck by her beauty and her naivety, and she's a few years younger than Emma. And without Miss Taylor, Emma's very lonely and bored, and this is a person that she can make a project out of. This wasn't really a game, though, for Emma. She seriously wanted to help Harriet, as well as Mr. Elton. Her intentions were definitely good, but the result is sometimes very painful to read about. She's very manipulative of Harriet. And Harriet does believe and listen to everything Emma tells her. It's almost as if Harriet is a piece of furniture that she can move around the house the way she wants. So even though she goes into the relationship thinking that she's going to help Harriet, there's still that undertone of Harriet's will is not even involved here. And the very first horrible example of this is that Harriet has had a very pleasant friendship with the young farmer, Robert Martin. And Emma wants to discourage this relationship because a farmer is beneath her. She's already sort of elevating Harriet to her own class and her own situation. She's imagining that her mysterious parents must be nobility or gentleman class. And she's determined to discourage Harriet from having anything to do with Robert Martin. And as we said, she decides the right man for Harriet is the minister, Mr. Elton. Yes. Yes, she thinks he will drive Robert Martin right out of Harriet's mind. Well, Pat, we know a little bit about Harriet now. Tell me a little bit about Mr. Elton. He is clearly in a social sphere above most of the people in the village, except for Emma and Mr. Knightley. As a minister, he needs to marry well. And so he finds himself attracted to Emma. Well, Jennifer, Emma believes that she sees interest in Harriet on the part of Mr. Elton. Mr. Elton is flattering Harriet because Emma is Harriet's friend. Right. As a reader, we're not really sure if he's complimenting Harriet or if he's complimenting Emma. Many times that's true. He's polite toward Harriet, and he's thoughtful in the way that he ought to, considering the profession he's in. And then, Jennifer, there does come a time when Mr. Elton tells Emma how he feels about her. Yes, Emma's brother-in-law and sister and their little boys are here from London. They've all been invited over to the Westons for a Christmas party. And her brother-in-law, Mr. John Knightley, like his brother, Mr. Knightley, is very direct. And he actually says something to Emma about thinking Mr. Elton's attracted to her. Of course, she thinks, oh, how silly, how wrong he is. But then on the way home from the Christmas party, 
Mr. Elton and Emma, by coincidence, get stuck in the same carriage together. And Mr. Elton, who's been paying her too much attention all night and had a little too much wine, suddenly starts expressing his love for her. It's just a horrible moment. She's trapped in a carriage with this guy, and they've got to go really, really slow because her father, of course, wants to make sure the carriages are going slow because of the snow. And she's telling him, Sir, I always thought your attentions were for my friend Harriet. And he's saying, Harriet, why would I ever think of her? They pull up at the parsonage, and he can't get out of the carriage fast enough, and he slams the door on his way out. And what's the final outcome of this refusal by Emma to even consider Mr. Elton's trough? He just disappears. How does Harriet react when she finds out that Mr. Elton has no interest in her? I think Emma feels worse about this proposal because of its effect on Harriet. She's got Harriet thinking she's so much in love with Mr. Elton. As a matter of fact, she's even talked Harriet into refusing a proposal that she's received from Robert Martin. Robert Martin had actually proposed to her before this? He had actually sent her a letter of proposal. It's a very good letter, even Emma has to admit. Now Emma has to let Harriet know that Mr. Elton proposed to her instead. Poor Harriet cries and cries, and it's going to set the stage for a long period of Harriet remorsing over Mr. Elton at every turn. Harriet is very much 16 years old. But, Pat, Emma soon gets another chance to try to make a match for Harriet. There's a new young man coming to town. That's right. Frank Churchill. Mr. Weston's son. Why isn't he Frank Weston? Well, when Frank was born, his mother died. And Mr. Weston decided that at the time his fortunes were not good, he decided that the best thing to do would be to place him with his late wife's brother and his wife. The Churchills. The Churchills and they raise him as their son, and he's going to be the heir to the Churchill fortune. But now that his father has married, he's going to come to town to meet his father's new wife. Which, of course, creates a huge buzz in Highbury. Frank has postponed the trip a couple of times. He's always citing his aunt's health as the reason. But his aunt really is sick, not like our Mr. Woodhouse, who only thinks he's sick. Well... Certainly Mr. Weston hints that Mrs. Churchill makes up her illnesses because she likes to manipulate people. Her illnesses fall at remarkably convenient moments. That's a good way to put it, actually. (laughs) But the community of Highbury has always had a great deal of curiosity to see Frank. And every time he does write a letter, it's passed around among the people of the community, and everyone reads it and remarks on his beautiful handwriting. But Jennifer, while we and the entire village of Highbury are waiting for Frank Churchill to show up, Actually, another young, unattached person shows up first, Jane Fairfax. Yes, Jane is the niece of Miss Bates. Miss Bates and her elderly mother, Mrs. Bates, live together in a small apartment in town. These are friends of Mr. Woodhouse and Emma's. Mrs. Bates, the elderly lady, is the wife of the late vicar of the town. So they are in the genteel class and can associate with the neighbors, but Once her husband died, she has no money, and they really live on the charity of the neighborhood. And Miss Bates, the aunt, is a very talkative and humorous lady. Their niece, Jane Fairfax, her parents died when she was just an infant, but she's been taken on and sort of adopted by a family. Sort of a parallel to Frank Churchill. She's living with people who have adopted her, and they're the Campbells. Yes. But in their case, they don't have a really large fortune, and the fortune that they do have is going to go for their daughters. So Jane Fairfax has been prepared to be a governess someday, and she's back in town to visit with her aunt and grandmother for a few months before she pursues a job as a governess. Well, Jennifer, let me guess. Emma can't wait to make a match for Jane as well. 
Emma's not interested in helping Jane. Why is that? She's always been a little bit jealous of Jane. Because of being educated as a governess, she's very well educated. She's very musically talented. She's beautiful. She's elegant. And she's all the things that Emma could be if she applied herself and tried harder. As Mr. Knightley likes to remind her. Yes, Mr. Knightley loves to remind Emma that she should apply herself more. She's not looking forward to Jane coming to town at all. Now, we already know that Jane and Emma don't get along. But when Jane comes to town this time, Emma's determined to make it different. That's right. Emma really wants to like Jane this time. She's going to put forth her best effort. Emma tries to have a conversation with Jane. She knows that she was recently at Weymouth when Frank Churchill was there. And she wants to get some information about Frank Churchill because everybody's wanting to know what's he really like. And Jane is very reserved, won't answer her questions. And Emma ends up in the same place she always is. She doesn't want to have anything to do with her because she's so reserved. Well, how about Frank Churchill? Does he ever get to town? Yes, he does. Is he what they expected? Oh, he's more than what they expected. He is elegant. He is handsome. He has beautiful manners. He's Mr. Witty. He's excited about everything. And people take it as a huge compliment that Frank takes an interest in their lives. And Mr. and Mrs. Weston obviously want to get Frank and Emma together. And Frank gratifies them by flirting with Emma. Emma believes that he's in love with her, and she's afraid she's going to end up breaking his heart because she's a little bit in love with him, but, you know, not that much in love with him. And besides, she's never going to marry. But, Pat, before Emma can decide who to match Mr. Churchill with, the entire town of Highbury gets some amazing news. Four weeks ago, Mr. Elton left town in a huff. Now he's coming back with a wife. He's married in four weeks? In four weeks, he's married a woman with what could be roughly called 10,000 pounds. She roughly calls it 10,000 pounds. She roughly calls it 10,000 pounds, and they come back in a flurry. Jennifer, who is the new Mrs. Elton? Augusta Hawkins. Her claim to fame is that her sister has married a Mr. Suckling of Maple Grove. And she talks about them incessantly and how large their house is and how they have a Rouge Landau, a very expensive modern carriage. They can carry four people in their carriage. She's very pretentious. She believes that she is now the new social leader of Highbury. Right. She's going to set herself up against Emma. And there is something due to the new bride in town, and she's going to take advantage of that. So she's always first, and everything is always in her honor. And Pat, in fact, the town of Highbury is going to throw her a party. And everybody who is anybody in town is invited, except for Emma. Why wouldn't Emma be invited? Emma's a little bit too high social class for the Coles, but that doesn't stop them from inviting Mr. Knightley. They've invited everyone in town except for Emma because they don't think she would come. And Emma is actually, at first, waiting to get the invitation so that she can refuse it. But after a while, when she realizes Frank Churchill's going to be there, Mr. Knightley's going to be there, everyone's going to be there but her, she begins to lament that she doesn't have an invitation. But an invitation eventually does arrive. Yes, it does, at the last possible minute. And Emma, who has been saying to herself, well, even if they sent me one, I wouldn't go, is eager to get there. And Jennifer, once we get to the party, the thing I seem to remember the most is a lot of discussion about a new piano. Yes, Jane Fairfax had received a very expensive piano and it was an anonymous gift. Everyone's talking about it, wondering where it came from. There's a couple of usual suspects. Emma has already decided some time ago that Jane must have had a secret flirtation with her dear friend's new husband, Mr. Dixon. So she thinks that's where it came from, and she spends a lot of time teasing with Frank Churchill about this. Where does Frank think it came from? He encourages Emma to think this, but he thinks it might have been a romantic gift. Frank and Emma did a lot of flirting. 
They sat off in corners by themselves, telling each other little jokes, a lot of little laughing. A lot of cruel little comments about people. Mostly directed to Jane, if I recall. Yes, and not particularly discreet about being seen and overheard laughing and talking together. Well, Pat, then let me ask you, after this party at the Coles, were there any matches made? There weren't, but Frank is called away suddenly because his aunt is ill, and as he leaves, he stops by to say goodbye to Emma, and she interprets his words as a proposal. Were they a proposal? We don't know. Emma's really not interested in Frank anymore, and she feels bad that he must be so much in love with her. What about her plans for Harriet and Frank Churchill? Well, Harriet may have her hopes set in another direction. Once Frank comes back to town, there was a party at the Crown Inn, and Mr. Elton made a point of publicly embarrassing Harriet. Right, he refused to ask her to dance. Exactly, even though she was the only unmarried woman standing there, and he was standing in front of her. Mr. Knightley immediately steps in and asks Harriet to dance, and Harriet is convinced that Mr. Knightley is attracted to her. Does Emma know this? No, but they do have a conversation where Harriet makes clear that she no longer pines after Mr. Elton, but thinks of someone else. Harriet says, I will never marry because her sights are set too high. And Emma tells Harriet stranger things have happened. So Harriet thinks Emma's encouraging her to pursue Mr. Knightley. When actually Emma's encouraging her to pursue Frank Churchill. Right. Yes. But before any of them get any of this straightened out, they all take a trip. Yes, they have an excursion to Box Hill the local tourist attraction. People go there and have picnics and little parties. And Jennifer, at Box Hill, Frank continues his flirtations with Emma, and the tension between Emma and Mrs. Elton continues to rise. Yes, this is a very unsuccessful party. Everyone seems out of temper and out of sorts. And Frank puts Emma on a pedestal, which deeply offends Mrs. Elton, who's very much competing with her for the high social position in the town. Right, Emma can't be up on that pedestal if I'm here. Right, so it's not a very good day. Jane Fairfax seems to be upset about something. Emma makes a smart aleck remark to poor Miss Bates. Yeah. Mr. Knightley abrades her for this, and she cries all the way home. And then Mr. Knightley leaves town. Well, now, wait a minute. Was she upset because she was cruel to Miss Bates, or was she upset because Mr. Knightley saw her being cruel to Miss Bates? I think both. I think Emma's really a good person down inside, and she realizes that she was wrong, but I think it doesn't hurt that Mr. Knightley is upset with her about it. And actually, that's what Mr. Knightley keeps telling her. Emma, you're better than this. Right. Exactly. And Pat, this rebuke from Mr. Knightley makes Emma want to make amends. And she goes to Miss Bates and tells her she's sorry. And she really is sorry. And when she visits them, Jane won't see her. And Emma thinks that Jane is avoiding her. Because of the way she treated Miss Bates. Yes, but that's not the real reason. And we're not going to learn that reason for just a little bit longer. But what happens next? Emma is called to the Westons. She's not just called, she's summoned and told, come immediately, there's important news, but no one will tell her what's up. She arrives and finds that Mr. Weston has received a letter from Frank announcing that his aunt has died, so he has now inherited this huge fortune, and he's engaged to Jane Fairfax. Now that one I didn't see coming. In fact, they've been engaged for months when they met at Weymouth. He sent the piano to Jane. Ah, so that explains the piano. But the Westons are upset because they had planned for Emma to marry Frank, and they're worried that Emma will be upset and embarrassed. Emma and Frank have been flirting in front of everyone so much that, of course, they think that Emma's heart might be broken when she receives this news. 
And that's actually what led to the trouble with Jane Fairfax. Jane, who was secretly engaged to Frank Churchill, watched Frank endlessly flirting with Emma. And Frank was flirting with Emma as a front to screen his real engagement to Jane Fairfax. As Emma told Frank later, he seemed to enjoy this game, and he flirted a little bit too hard. Not only that, but he has just lived up to everything that Mr. Knightley warned her about, that there was something between Jane and Frank, and that he didn't trust Frank. But Emma doesn't react to this letter from Frank Churchill the way the Westons expected. She really doesn't love Frank Churchill. No. She tells Mrs. Weston that he never really engaged her feelings. In the end, Frank Churchill and Jane Fairfax do make a match. But Emma had nothing to do with this one. No, she didn't see it coming. (laughs) So Mr. Knightley hears about Frank and Jane. And he comes back. He's been away thinking that Frank and Emma were getting involved. So he comes back to soothe Emma's broken heart and see if he has a chance. And once Emma gets over the shock that Mr. Churchill wasn't in love with her, she has another worry. Yes, she's been encouraging Harriet to be in love with someone again, and it's been Frank Churchill. So now, is Harriet's heart going to be broken again the way it was over Mr. Elton? And Emma rushes to Harriet to tell her. Before she hears it from anyone else. But too late. Harriet has heard it, and she doesn't care. And the reason she doesn't care is because Harriet confides that she believes that Mr. Knightley is in love with her. And Emma thinks this might be true. She thinks over the different attentions that he paid to Harriet, and she starts to realize, you know, she doesn't want anybody to marry Mr. Knightley. Except? Because she's in love with Mr. Knightley. So she had a match right under her nose and never made it. Never saw it. (laughs) And now she's very depressed because she thinks that Mr. Knightley is going to marry Harriet. And it's her own fault. But Pat, I think I've read enough Jane Austen now to know that Mr. Knightley is not going to end up with Harriet. No, he's not. He has heard that Frank and Jane are engaged. He has come back because he thinks there might still be a chance for him. And he wants to soothe Emma's broken heart and ends up proposing, and Emma accepts him. But what about poor Harriet? Poor Harriet. Emma writes Harriet a letter to explain everything to her and offers her the chance to visit her sister in London. So she'll go to London and stay for a few weeks, and then she won't have to be around while Mr. Knightley and Emma are parading in front of the town that they're engaged. Not to mention Frank Churchill and Jane Fairfax. So Emma whisks Harriet off to London. But while in London, Mr. Knightley sends Robert Martin to London for some errands for him. And of course, he's invited to have dinner with the John Knightleys in London. And Harriet's there. And one thing leads to another. And he proposes to her again. And this time, he's accepted. Finally. Finally. This could have been the first match. Yes. And it ends up being the last match. Right. So let me see if I can get this all straight. Frank Churchill is going to marry Jane Fairfax. Harriet is going to marry Robert Martin. And Emma is going to marry Mr. Knightley. Yes. Our lives were never the same after we learned our 21-year-old daughter, Kristen, was murdered by her ex-boyfriend. It's a parent's worst nightmare. How much did we really know about domestic violence back then? Clearly not enough. Now we know plenty. We know domestic violence, or DV, can happen to anyone. One in three women suffer physical violence at the hands of intimate partners during their lifetimes. One in three. I'm Bill Mitchell, host of the When Dating Hurts podcast, and my interviews with DV counselors, law enforcement, and especially actual DV survivors give the pandemic of domestic violence the attention it deserves. 
the When Dating Hurts podcast. It's a series of lives being saved. But before our novel ends, that third marriage almost doesn't happen. That's right. Emma realizes that she can't marry anyone until her father dies. He has to die? Well, what's she going to do? She can't move away. She can't leave him alone. Well, how do they solve that? Mr. Knightley volunteers to move into Hartfield. Mr. Knightley's going to give up his ancestral manor and move into Emma's ancestral manor? Well, it'll still be there, but he's going to move in with Emma and her father, and they will stay there until her father passes away, and then they can move back to the Abbey. Of course, Mr. Woodhouse is still unhappy about the idea of Emma marrying. He doesn't see any reason for it. They see Mr. Knightley enough now. He comes and visits almost every day. Why do they need him around all the time? But something happens that helps Emma and Mr. Knightley convince him that it would be better to have a man in the house even at night. And Pat, what was that? Oh, Mr. Weston's hen house is robbed one night of all the turkeys, and other hen houses in the neighborhood were also robbed. Mr. Woodhouse feels that this is just like housebreaking, so he's relieved to have a son-in-law around, just in case. So Mr. Woodhouse isn't so interested in Mr. Knightley as a son-in-law, but as a protector and guardian very much. Yes, his resistance is finally broken down by this incident, and he agrees to their wedding, and so they're finally able to get married. That's right. Our novel does end with that third wedding. Yes, it does. And that essentially is the story of the novel, Emma, by Jane Austen. Now, of course, Pat, Jennifer, in a novel of this size, we can't get to every character, and we can't get to every moment. So now's your opportunity to perhaps tell us about a character you like that we didn't get a chance to talk about, or maybe give us a moment that we never got to. Pat, do you have something? I do. Mrs. Elton and Emma are speaking. It's almost the first time they've met. Mrs. Elton has set herself up as the new social arbiter in town. She definitely feels that she is competition to Emma. And of course, Emma disagrees with that. But she has come to visit and she'll compliment. But at the same time, it's an underhanded compliment. Not the least of these is that the conversation turns to the Westons, Emma's former governess and her husband. She says, Mr. Weston seems an excellent creature, quite a first-rate favorite with me already, I assure you. And she appears so truly good. There's something so motherly and kind-hearted about her that it wins upon one directly. She was your governess, I think? Emma was almost too astonished to answer, but Mrs. Elton hardly waited for the affirmative before she went on. Having understood as much, I was rather astonished to find her so very ladylike. But she really is a handsome gentlewoman. Jennifer, how about you? Do you have a quote or a moment? Well, there's a wonderful party at Mr. Knightley's where they pick strawberries. The way this party came about is that Mr. Knightley sort of mentioned it, that they could come to his house and pick strawberries to Mrs. Elton, and she immediately assumes that it's her party, and they have a great conversation about that. He says he cannot name a day until he has talked to some other people to make sure everyone can come. And she says, oh, leave all that to be. Only give me a carte blanche. I am Lady Patroness, you know. It is my party. I will bring friends with me. And he says, you know, I'll make the invitations. And they sort of have this almost argument back and forth. And she's saying, you are looking very sly. But consider, you need not be afraid of delegating power to me. I am no young lady on her preferment. Married women, you know, may be safely authorized. It is my party. And this goes on. And he says, no, there is but one married woman in the world whom I can ever allow to invite what guests she pleases to Dunwell, and that one is Mrs. Weston, I suppose, interrupted Mrs. Elton, rather mortified, of course, because she wants to be number one. And he says, no, Mrs. Knightley, 
Until she is in being, I will manage such matters myself. That was a great line. I love that. (laughs) That's when I knew I liked Mr. Knightley. (laughs) During our discussion of Harriet, we mentioned that she was a day boarder at a small girl's school in town, and that school was being run by Mrs. Goddard. We didn't really get a chance to talk about Mrs. Goddard, but this is a little quote about her school. Mrs. Goddard was the mistress of a school, not of a seminary or an establishment, or anything which professed, in long sentences of refined nonsense, to combine liberal acquirements with elegant morality upon new principles and new systems, and where young ladies for enormous pay might be screwed out of health and into vanity, but a real, honest, old-fashioned boarding school, where a reasonable quantity of accomplishments were sold at a reasonable price, and where girls might be sent out of the way and scramble themselves into a little education, without any danger of coming back as prodigies. Harriet's certainly not a prodigy. No. But you know what? She knew who she wanted to marry from the very beginning. (laughs) She did. (laughs) Unlike Emma. Unlike Emma. You know, there's a character in here that we didn't really talk about. Emma's brother-in-law, Mr. John Knightley. John Knightley. (laughs) I love Mr. John Knightley. I wish he were my attorney. He's that good. (laughs) He's a little bit ornery. He really can't tolerate Mr. Woodhouse very well. He's very blunt. And there's a scene at the Weston's Christmas party where he goes out, checks the weather, and comes in and says something rather shocking because he wants to go home. And he knows that if he talks about the snow, Mr. Woodhouse will want to leave right away. One of the things he says is, I admired your resolution very much, sir, in venturing out in such weather, for of course you saw there would be snow very soon. Another hour or two's snow can hardly make the road impassable. And we are two carriages. If one is blown over in the bleak part of the common field, there will be the other at hand. (laughs) I dare say we shall all be safe at Hartfield before midnight. And you're right. As soon as he says that, Mr. Woodhouse wants to leave. (laughs) And it's half a mile away. There's one point where the Westons have gone with Emma and Frank to look over the Crown Inn where they want to throw this party. They're looking over the dancing area, and Mrs. Weston says, Emma, Look, in places you see it's dreadfully dirty, and the wainscot is more yellow and forlorn than anything I could have imagined. My dear, you're too particular, said her husband. What does all that signify? It will be as clean as Randall's is by candlelight. We never see anything of it on our club nights, because the men play cards there. The ladies here probably exchanged looks which meant, men never know when things are dirty or not. And the gentleman perhaps thought each to himself, Women will have their little nonsenses and needless cares. (laughs) (laughs) That's true. (laughs) That is true. We're still the same. 200 years later. (laughs) (laughs) I have one more quote I want to read, and to me, this sums up Emma. This is how I will always think of Emma. At one point, Mr. Knightley is trying to convince her that he knows the news about Harriet and Mr. Martin, whereas Emma thinks that he's gotten it confused. Mr. Knightley says, no, how can you think I'm confused? Do you dare to suppose me a great blockhead as to not know what a man is talking of? What do you deserve? And this is how Emma replies. Oh, I always deserve the best treatment because I never put up with any other. That's right. And that's Emma. She deserves the best and she will take nothing less. (laughs) That's right. And I think it's on that point we're going to end our discussion today about the novel Emma by Jane Austen. Pat, Jennifer, I want to thank both of you for coming in and having this conversation with me today. That was fun, Frank. Thank you, Frank. Thank you both very much. Joining me now for endnotes on today's conversation is our researcher, Ted Schwartz. Ted, hello. Hi, Frank. Ted, with this novel, we have some firsts and we have a last. This was the first novel that she published under her name. I believe it's also the novel she felt was her best novel, but it was the last novel published before her death. Yes, this was a book that achieved everything she was working towards. She was certain nobody else would like the character Emma. 
she knew the book was good. This was the high point of her skills. She was very much aware of the comic success, of the romantic success, but she thought that Emma was such a rotten human being in so many ways that nobody else except her could love the woman. Well, I don't know that I would say Emma was a rotten character. She's the most real character, and perhaps that's why we see her foibles as well as her good points. Yes, but remember that at this point, Jane Austen had spent many, many hours living with this woman. Well, and as it turns out, Jane Austen was right. This novel was not her most popular novel at the time. No, by the time she died, about a year after it was out, it had only sold something around 550 copies. Compared to how many for some of her other novels? Oh, at this point, I'd have to say she probably, in that time frame, should have expected 1,500 to 2,500, at least three or four times as many. Well, the novel may not have been as popular as some of her earlier ones, but she certainly had a famous fan. Yes, the Prince of Wales, who eventually became George IV, we don't really know if he was a fan, if someone connected with him was trying to curry favor with him, but she was approached to dedicate her next book, which was Emma, to him. Well, Ted, I don't remember reading that dedication. That's because she hated the man. He was a known adulterer, as was his wife, for that matter. And she just sent a very polite note thanking the court for the interest in her work and leaving it that. Ted, one of the reasons I really like that story is because it shows a Jane Austen who's mature, who's grown up, who's now comfortable with her status as a well-known author of her time, and she's not going to kowtow to anyone, including the Prince of Wales. She's become very comfortable in the style of writing that she has now mastered. In a letter of April 1st, 1816, she said, I could no more write a historical romance, and this had become popular in England at that time, than an epic poem. I could not sit seriously down to write a serious romance under any other motive than to save my life. And if it were indispensable for me to keep it up and never relax into laughing at myself or other people, I am sure I should be hung before I had finished the first chapter. Well, Ted, that's a great quote to show us that she was pleased and happy with what she had done. But I also know that you've come across some quotes in her letters that also describe the way she felt at this time. Yes, there was a letter she wrote in 1813, about the time she was starting Emma, where she was explaining the fact that she is now treated as an older woman, not quite a chaperone, but also no longer a participant in dances. And she says with delight, For I am put on the sofa near the fire and can drink as much wine as I like. Not a bad way to spend your earned respectability. But at 39, she only had two more years to live. Yes. It seems she was getting very tired at this point. She was doing all the work a woman should do. She was spending her evenings writing letters. She was putting out as much fiction as she could and also trying to help her family. In fact, she left so much writing that after her death, there's still two novels to be published posthumously. Not only that, but huge amounts of letters. They were all saved. And while most of them, frankly, are quite boring, within them, at the time she's writing books, when her niece is approaching her with her own work, you get lessons in how Jane Austen saw the market for novels and how to approach fiction for that market. Ted, thank you very much for your endnotes on today's novel, Emma, by Jane Austen. Always fun, Frank. I also want to thank my Novel Conversations readers, Jennifer Weinbrecht and Pat Fernberg. You've been listening to Novel Conversations. Today I had a conversation about the novel Emma by Jane Austen. I'm your host, Frank Lavallo. Until next week, I hope you find yourself in a novel conversation. Novel Conversations is a production of The Front Porch People. Listen to more great conversations at thefrontporchpeople.com.
Thank you for listening. History is complicated. The story of human progress is long, messy, and riddled with controversies big and small. On Conflicted, we dive headfirst into history's most infamous events and contentious figures. We try and untangle the good from the bad, the fact from the fiction, and the monsters from the misunderstood. Was Genghis Khan a murderous butcher or a civic pioneer? Did the Allied powers go too far in firebombing the German city of Dresden at the twilight of World War II? And how did the Marquis de Sade acquire such a sinister reputation? And was any of it true? These are just a few of the tough questions we wrestle with and investigate on Conflicted. So if you love history or just enjoy a good story, please join me, your host, Zach Cornwell, for a fascinating new topic each and every month. Conflicted, a history podcast, is available on Spotify, Apple, or wherever else you get your podcasts. I hope to see you soon. This podcast was produced with the support of the Ohio Motion Picture Tax Credit and in partnership with the Ohio Development Services Agency.